uh, Kelberg against Crawford is it's not it's not a fight, is it really? I mean, um, Crawford is one of the pound for pound top fighters in the world right now, and um, Kelberg is not. Right, listen, mm. if you if you want to sort it out, fight me. You didn't fight me. You could have fought me, and you didn't. If you want to fight me, here I am. Let's have a fight. Let's do it on the cobbles if you want. Forget boxing. Outside. When I fought Hatton, I knocked Hatton out with 10 ounce gloves on. Stepping back when he was undefeated. Am I proud of my spanking? Yeah, How did he go be as equally talented as me? Are you serious? As easy as I beat him? I could have beat him while playing chuckles on the other side. That's how easy that was. <laughs> and he better than us? Are you serious, James Tony? They call me the problem, but you could call me the can man, because anybody can get Africans, Americans, Dominicans, Mexicans, anybody can get it. Hey guys and welcome to Beyond Boxing, another episode, hopefully some more of that classic material. So as per the title of the podcast, what I'd really like to talk about is Terence Crawford and how he is a trainer's dream and He's the template of how all boxers should be, not just modern boxers, but hopefully boxers of the future. Because Saturday was the culmination of one man doing everything he can to be the best he can be at his craft. And when you're a trainer, that's that's probably all you ask for. But before we get into that, I just wanted to congratulate Denzel Bentley. Um, I think it's always good to shine light on you know podcast alumni that are doing really well. And uh, fulfilling the promise that, you know, we have highlighted over numerous episodes. So as most of you know, Denzel stopped Mark Heffron on Friday night to win the British Middleweight Championship. And that's a fantastic achievement considering how few fights Denzel Bentley's had. And generally, the fact that he's been off the radar for a long time. And it's only really recently he's come through. And we should just insert in brackets... You know, no one's laughing at the title of the Black Golovkin now, are they? <laughs> but I just wanted to congratulate him because he did something that very few prospects can do. And he boxed for the win and not for the crowd. I know there wasn't a crowd there, but he didn't even box for the audience. If you remember the first fight, he was trying to make it exciting. He was trying to make a name for himself and he was trying to get himself, you know, seen. And he wanted to be the, the showstopper and all this sort of stuff. And what you saw this time was a more measured Denzel. And I think the biggest difference was the way he threw his right hand. So in the first fight, it was wild. And it's almost like he, he ignored the basic mechanics and just trusted that he was heavy-handed. And in this fight, as soon as he crispened up and as soon as he neatened up his work, look what he did to Hefron's eye. The first punch of any anger. And Hefron suddenly realized this guy can really hit. And I think from then on, the writing was on the wall. So... Massive congratulations to Denzel. If anyone follows him on social media, which you should, at 2SharpD, he has been in pictures with everyone. Like, from Friday till now, Denzel's done about 200 photographs with different people. I've never met 200 people in four days. It's like he's done a meet and greet, but he seems to be in so many different locations that it can't just be one meet and greet. He's been absolutely everywhere. And I love the fact that he's using this time to celebrate his achievement. But obviously the key thing for him going forward 
is that boxing education, which we're going to discuss later on in this episode. But he needs to stay on top of that boxing education because the difference between being a British champion and a world champion, you can't run any further. You can't lift any more weights. You're not going to learn any new punches. But you can become better educated in how you apply the things that you have. And I think that's the next evolution for him. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes and you know, perhaps I'll be part of that journey. I don't know, but I'll always be by his side and offer whatever guidance and insight that I can. But the stoppage that everyone's talking about happened the day after. As much as I want Denzel to get all the limelight, unfortunately, this is Terence Crawford's weekend because Terence Crawford gave us a perfect lesson in completeness. And... Terence Crawford is a coach's dream. Once every three or four years, you get a Terence Crawford come through your gym. And they're not often easy to recognize. You don't recognize them in the first session. You don't recognize them in the fifth or sixth session. Maybe by the 20th session, they'll be different. They'll, they'll focus a bit more. They'll want to get things right. They'll do the repetitive stuff. They won't need you to tell them to do the repetitive stuff. And they'll focus on getting their basics perfect before they try anything else. So they're not walking in trying to be Mayweather. They're walking in trying to be the best versions of themselves. And when you work with people like that, it is so easy. And if you follow Terence Crawford's career, what you'll notice is he does all of these small things that when you add them together, make him a formidable opponent. But before we get into the to the behind-the-scenes stuff for Terence Crawford. Let's zero in on, on what makes him unique. And I think Saturday exemplified it. That fight for the limited distance we had, it might have been three and a bit rounds that we had of Brooke versus Crawford. What you saw was mastery in action. Now, we know as British fans that Kel Brook is pretty one-dimensional. But the thing about being one-dimensional in some cases is you become really good at those very limited things that you do. And Kel is unbelievably good at it on paper. Now, you know, time and you know, lifestyle can take it away from you, but Kel Brook has two things that he is elite at in this country, maybe the best in this country at. Number one is distance control. Kel has always been able to have the fight happen when and where he wants it to happen. And the second gift that Kel Brook has is timing. Um... Years at the Ingle Gym have clearly equipped him to understand the nature and the timing of attacks. And through that, he's developed this freakish sense of timing that means that he's one of the most effective counterpunchers to come out of this country in a long, long time. And I think Team Crawford underestimated how good Kel was at those two things. Because normally... Crawford relies on fighters making mistakes. Kel doesn't make that many mistakes and definitely doesn't make those mistakes in an orthodox versus orthodox fight. You see in the Golovkin fight, until Golovkin turned up the power and the intensity, Kel was winning the, the boxing match because people underestimate his timing and they underestimate his movement and his footwork. It's not flashy, but it's so well drilled, so precise and so good, Kel can do the things that he needs to do. And so for the first few rounds, Kel was picking up points by simply being better at those two things than Terence Crawford was. And I think Crawford would admit he struggled with the distance and he struggled with the timing. 
And here's the difference between the two. Crawford understood that in an orthodox v orthodox, he wasn't going to win the shootout with Kel. And Kel wasn't going to give him that opportunity. So I think what Crawford did, and maybe his corner also decided this was, maybe we should put the power on him and see what those eye sockets are really like. Now that switch to southpaw is really, really important. What it does is it takes Terence Crawford, who's essentially right-handed, and it puts his most dexterous and his most powerful hand right in harm's way. And what you're trying to do from that position is try and catch Brook on the blind side. Normally with the lead hook, but you can do it with the jab if your footwork's right. So you just want to be slightly outside the peripheral vision and get those shots in. And then you're testing the strength of the eye socket. And you'll say, okay, if we start hitting Kel around the eyes, how does he react to that? And so you could see that was what Crawford started to do. And he started to increase the pace. And that's something we'll come on to later in terms of what makes Crawford unique. He started to increase the pace. So just when Kel was getting comfortable going, this Crawford kid ain't that bad. I, I think I can do this. I think I'm, And you start to build confidence. And all of a sudden he sees Crawford switch to Southpaw. I don't think Kel made the adjustments that he should have done because one of the things people don't realize is Crawford's five foot eight, but he's got a six foot two wingspan. And much like O'Hara Davis, those arms are longer than they look because he's an unremarkable physique. Like when you look at Crawford, he's not freakishly put together until you realize that he can seemingly jab you from anywhere. And once Crawford had set himself up to put that pressure on, we were wondering how long it would take till he started to land the, the devastating hooks to the body because once he goes southpaw, that's when the body attack starts. But interestingly enough, it was a, it was a, not even a fully extended jab. It was a jab that Kel kind of lent into because he got lazy with his jab. You know, a bit of complacency maybe creeping in. But the capitulation that we saw with Kel was kind of strange considering the nature of the punch. We've never seen anyone do that with Crawford. Crawford will normal get, he'll normally get you, yeah. But he'll hurt you with a punch he intends to hurt you with. That one just felt like he was throwing a jab. And his reaction was almost like, I've hit the lottery, because he, it took him a split second to realize he could just jump on Kel Brook, because he just thought, what the hell's happened here? Because it didn't make any sense. And so, obviously, once he realized that, you know, he, he hurt Kel with a jab, it was simply a matter of time before you know, the fight was over. And that was sad because up until that point, it was building into being a really beautiful fight between two highly educated boxers. On one side, Kel Brook, you know, the master of his really narrow set of skills. On the other hand, Crawford, the master of a much wider range of skills and almost a, a sorcerer, a magician maybe, in how he puts them together. But the roots of that success go all the way back. They go all the way back to Terence Crawford's amateur days. With the guys that I've trained, with the guys that I train, with the guys that I advise currently, I always say this, it's better to lose when it doesn't matter. As a coach, we will take the losses when they don't matter as long as they trigger behaviours that become valuable later on. So when you look at Terence Crawford's amateur record, the best way to describe it is he won some, he lost some, 
but it was all against top-level opponents. So when you look at his record, he's fought guys like Carlos Molina. He's fought guys like Danny Garcia. I think he's gone in big tournaments. He's gone one and one with Danny Garcia. So that puts him in good company, but it also puts Danny in good company. You go through the record. There are wins and losses against Saddam Ali, Mikey Garcia, Jordanus Ugas. He's always been in good company. And I think when you're developing, you're coming up. As long as you're in good company, you know, in that kind of age between 17 and 19, 20 years old, as long as you're competing in good company, you will tend to rise with those people you compete with. But I love the fact that he won some and lost some. I don't trust young amateurs who go through their whole amateur career with two or three defeats because it's almost like, how many wake-up calls do you need? And these wake-up calls will normally come in the pros. So you'd rather they happen in the amateurs so when you do turn over into the pros or when you get to the Olympics, you've kind of got all the losses out of your system. And you've made peace with the fact that if you don't perform, you don't win. And for all the people who ask questions around why the amateurs are so important, to be honest, you can do all your losing in the amateurs. And that's not to say actively go out and lose, but those losses aren't magnified like they are in the pros. And those losses back there don't stop you earning money in the pros. And this is what a lot of people don't understand. But what that did is it, it gave Terence Crawford this thing that said, I've still got something to prove. He never made the Olympic squad. I don't know if it was Danny Garcia he lost to. It was someone of that. It might have been Saddam Ali, actually. But when you lose, that sense of injustice can often fuel you. You'll do the extra reps. You'll do the extra mile. You'll, you'll move your camp from your home base to somewhere else. You will do the things that it takes because you don't want that feeling again. I think we saw that with Floyd. I don't know if we would have got the same Floyd Mayweather had he won the gold medal in 96 because he always felt he had something to prove. And so that's where the mindset came from, that fear of letting something like that happen again. And I think you've got that with Crawford. So even before he's turned pro, he's got the experience and he's gone kind of 50-50 with the big names of his generation, which is always impressive because it tells you he was always there or thereabouts. So when you turn pro, what it becomes about is who's willing to put the extra work in, number one, but number two, who's willing to do the education. That becomes really important. So Terence Crawford turns pro in 2008. And what you see is a slow progression towards building maybe one of the best training operations in professional boxing. And I think one of the key triggers behind that was having two guys in, Brian McIntyre, as he calls Bomac, and Iso Dieguez, who I think is his sort of like secondary trainer. And in those two guys, you essentially have, and you don't want to call them journeymen, it's a bit disrespectful, but they're guys who work local circuits in boxing. Um, I think they probably lost more than they won. And as we said earlier about losing, losing imbues you with a certain mindset. So Terence Crawford suddenly has two guys who are relatively unheralded in the sport, but seemingly have the right ideas. And they have the right mentality because they know a lot of the things they didn't do right. I think Bomac fought Butterbean once as a bit of trivia. So that tells you how physically big he was. Iso Dieguez was a local fighter in and around the scene. But what typifies Crawford from 2008 till now is 
this realization, you never see Terence Crawford out of shape. And I think part of that's probably genetics. I think he's probably lean genetically. He's just prone to not putting on too much fat. But it's not just that. It's he's freakishly strong. You rarely see Crawford bullied in a fight, if ever. He's blessed with freakishly long arms. He's surprisingly quick. But he also has this beautiful ability to to vary the pace and that keeps you guessing because you don't know if you're having an easy round or a hard round against him and then out of nowhere bang he'll just change the variables on you and I like that when you're training someone the words I use a lot are things like pace and decision making Crawford's elite at both of those he understands the importance of both of those now Take some time and find a video of Terence Crawford training. There's nothing fancy about it. His shadow boxing, it's textbook, but it's pretty basic. His bag work is just all the stuff that he does in a fight. But he just does more of it, does it quicker, does it with a greater intensity because there's nothing coming back. But that doesn't mean that he gets defensively lazy. He's always aiming to be faultless in all that he does. And these are small things that I don't see in a lot of fighters. You know, a lot of people see shadow boxing as going through the motions, whereas it's not. It's, it's, it's the first step in what you're going to do in that session. So if you're going to spar in that session, your shadow boxing should be preparing you for that. The warm-up on the back should be preparing you for that, and then you spar. But a lot of people just want to get to the bit that they enjoy without really putting the work in. And week after week, year after year, those deficiencies start to catch up with you. Another thing people don't see about Crawford that I really like is he's really involved in his own training. He would ask questions. Why am I eating this? Why am I doing this drill? Why am I sparring this opponent? Why are we doing this at this point in camp? Like he's, he's an active member of what's a pretty tight-knit team. I think that team has hardly changed since he turned pro. He'll bring some people in, maybe some specialist strength and conditioning work, but he will always have an input into what happens in his camp. And I just think that when you engage with the camp that way, when you're fully involved in all the decision-making, you're more invested in it. Therefore, you get more out of the camp because you understand it and you're able to gauge where you are in relation to what was agreed at the beginning of it. What you can also do with that understanding is you can tweak the camp to suit where you're at. You might have more energy than expected, so you can push harder. You might have less energy than expected, so you can't push as hard. But all these small things add up over the years. And they mean that Crawford's a real leader, much in the way that Lewis Hamilton's a leader at Mercedes. He doesn't do all of the work, but he does the important job. And because he does the important job, he makes sure that his voice is heard. But I think as you mature, you work out how to share that message, who to share that message with, and then you work out how to bring the best out of your team so they can bring the best out of you. And I, and I don't know, and maybe people who have seen more of Terence Crawford than I can talk about this, but I've never heard of Crawford having hangers-on in camp. It seems that everyone who's there is there to do something. Like, when they run, they run together. When you go to the gym, everyone goes to the gym. When they're sparring, everyone's working. Everyone's on the bag. Everyone's pulling their weight, and that helps the boat go forward because the focus is all the same. There, there are no shirt fillers or seat fillers, as people like to call them. Which, as a trainer... And I've been in many gyms where there are hangers-on floating around. They serve no purpose. They're just there to say they were there. And whatever people try and tell you, the reality is 
they suck the energy out. They don't suck all of it out, but they suck enough of it out that you're not at your optimum. My belief is gyms should be clear of anyone not involved in the process of boxing. No friends, no family, no kids, nothing. Like, we're just demanding an hour of focus a day. Like, you can see these people whenever. But a boxer's ego will be their downfall because they always need to be seen by their friends because that's how they validate who they are. And I just look at Crawford's camp and everyone looks tight and everyone looks aligned to the mission, which is being better than we were yesterday. And when you've got a camp like that, that's actually amazing. And then just to touch on that camp, the fact that he goes up to Colorado Springs and, you know, the, the geographers of you out there might be able to peg this better than I can. But I think it's about two and a half thousand feet above sea level up there. It might be even be more. It might be closer to 3,000, 4,000. But it's something like that. And hey, the fact that you're willing to endure that hardship, Colorado is not probably not the most ideal place you'd want to live. It's definitely character building. But to shut yourself off for eight to 10 weeks and focus on the, on the business of boxing at altitude where you're able to build up your, your red blood cell count, your stamina. And then pause there, guys. Just pause. Now think about the counts we see in places like Portugal or Fuerteventura or Tenerife. And guys are going out for the sunshine because they say that's what makes you train harder. And what performances do you see when they come back from those sorts of climates? There can't be a coincidence. Crawford's going somewhere. He doesn't have to go, but he chooses to go because that's where he can isolate himself. That's where he can challenge himself in an environment that's not easy. I think they do this. There's a hill run that they do, and it rises 2,000 feet. It's only about a mile and a half, two miles long, but it rises 2,000 feet. That's actually, that's insane. And at altitude as well. So if you can master that by the end of camp, you know your stamina is good. It's a good benchmark for you. And that's what you see with Crawford. It's, it's not a complicated camp and it's not far from the United States Olympic Training Center where they also do some work. So you've got elite athletes. If you need elite level sparring from the amateurs, they're there. There's elite level wrestling, I think elite level weightlifting. The expertise he has around him that people don't realize but he embraces all of this and he takes all of this in. You know, when you speak to people who've been in camp with Crawford, he takes a lot of this stuff in. But he's not a bad athlete himself. Probably if he was bigger, he'd be a decent football player. He'd be a decent basketball player. But boxing's a sport for all sizes and so he's been able to carve his niche there. But as a trainer, I look at all of this and it makes me smart because I say, here's a guy you don't ever have to question. You know? We already know his reputation in Omaha and Nebraska for being a tough guy. But you don't hear anything negative about him in the media. What I love is he takes that tough guy demeanor and he applies it to the sport of boxing. If you go back and watch the build-up with Kel, you could see Terence Crawford was letting him know, I'll take your head off now. It's only because there's cameras and there's money at stake, I'm not going to take your head off now. But I'm ready for that. Kel wasn't sounding that strong. Kel was still talking about a boxing match. Crawford was talking about taking heads clean off. And that mindset you can't coach. That's what makes him a one-off. You can't coach that. Because, like, you'll see Dylan and you'll see Derek. And they're, they're men of extremes. Like, the, the anger is extreme. It's not, it's, there's no intensity to it. There's calm and then there's anger. Whereas if you look at Crawford, there's this intensity where... He's already in a place where it's not going to take much for him to come after you. 
And he seems to carry that through training camp into a fight. And I think that's really impressive. And a lot of guys don't do that. A lot of guys don't know when to switch off the nice guy act. Now, I know people are going to talk about you got to be a gentleman in boxing. No, you got to win. Yeah, be a gentleman afterwards. Be a gentleman when it doesn't matter. But when it matters, you got to be a savage. And a lot of guys, especially in Britain, a lot of guys do not have that in them. And there's a reason why. Boxing gyms in Britain do not like characters like that. Because boxing gyms in Britain are populated by men who are pretty insecure. So when someone comes in with that self-confidence and that willingness to, to take heads off, it intimidates them because they don't have that. And so they normally get bounced out of clubs or, and then they end up going to lower ranking clubs where you don't have the opportunity and the exposure. But when you get someone with a mindset like Crawford, man, you've got to hang on to them. They're the kind of people you want to develop. Because I can teach you to box a lot easier than I can teach you to be mean and vicious, I promise you. And that's what makes Crawford a coach's dream, is he's already got the mindset. He's already got the desire to do the things you want him to do. All you have to do is teach him. But he's also got that mindset of, I want to learn. And as a coach, nothing puts a smile on your face more than that. So what does that all mean? When you then start to look at Terence Crawford the fighter and what makes him special and what puts him in that kind of discussion maybe pathway is a better word and that pathway to say he's got a lot of mayweather like tendencies and the dedications there the disciplines there the hungers there the the little bit of devil in him is there the receptiveness to training is there the consistency of training camp is there the ability to be uncomfortable is there the fearlessness, all of these, all of these traits that Floyd also had are there. I think the slight difference is maybe Crawford's a bit more durable. His hands have held up more, so he can still afford to be the the brutal puncher that he is. Because one of the interesting things I, I keep saying to people in boxing is Terence Crawford's not hard to hit. If you study all of his fights, Terence Crawford gets hit. Terence Crawford gets hit. He gets hit hard. He gets rocked. That's what makes it even more impressive is that he's able to take those kinds of shots and come back and overwhelm people. And what he's got is this gift that people should train a lot more and it's pace. He can, he can have you being comfortable at a, at a 220, 230 moves per round pace. Then you might switch it up to 300, then drop it down to 180 when it conserves energy. But you're still expecting the 300, so your stress levels are up. And then just when you start to relax, he goes back up to 250, 260. And because he keeps punching while you get tired and you throw less and less punches, you leave more and more openings for him. He becomes a combination puncher. Now he doesn't really care about getting hit because he knows you don't have any power left. And he starts to break you down. The body works fantastic. One of the few southpaws you see regularly dig into the body with that right hook which normally precedes a right uppercut into a straight left. So he starts to hurt you with the most hurtful punches a southpaw can throw. And it's, I don't want to say it's systematic, it's not. It's reflective of a guy who trusts his skills, he trusts his fundamentals, and he trusts the tactical game plan given to him. And so what he's able to do, and this is what Crawford does better than any other fighter, maybe except for Errol Spence, he imposes himself on a fight and he says to you, I'm going to do whatever I want to do in this fight. 
it's up to you to find a solution. You're no longer my problem. I am your problem. And it's going to get increasingly painful if you don't find a solution to it. And we didn't get to a point in the Kelbrook fight where we could find out if if Kel was willing to make those adjustments because as soon as Crawford switched to Southpaw, he turned it up. And it reminded me of that third round. I think it was the third round between Josh Taylor and O'Hara Davis. And Josh Taylor clearly figured out everything he needed to know about O'Hara Davis. And so he said, I know what he can do technically. What's going to happen if I step on the accelerator? Will he react or will he fold? And unfortunately, O'Hara Davis folded because he wasn't used to someone imposing themselves in a fight like that. Because very few people teach that. That's Josh Taylor's mindset. I don't think you can, you can't train that aspect in someone, but you can help them get better at it. You can give them the latitude to be that person. And I think that's what Josh Taylor did. And that's what, that's what Crawford did, you know, when he made the switch at the end of round three to, to really just stick it on Kelbrook. Because just think about this for a second. Kelbrook, who's got one of the best jabs in boxing, in boxing, you know, in terms of timing, in terms of, you know, shape, it's, it's a decent jab. But Crawford was able to find that space over the lead arm and hit him in and around the cheekbone. So why was he able to do that? He was able to do that one because his arms are so long that when he holds his arms up, they sit naturally higher than most people. So he can always throw his jab over the top because his hands are already in a higher position and his arms are long enough that they'll get to you. And so if you don't know how to master that distance orthodox to southpaw, which I assume Kel can, then you're always going to struggle. And Kel unfortunately did because he did exactly what he had done in the first three rounds without making the adjustment. And as he's come forward, his chin and his shoulder have separated enough that he hasn't got that firm base around the jab to insulate himself against an attack. And he paid a heavy price. He basically lost the fight because of that. But there are all these other things that we've seen Crawford do. Brooks not the first guy to be overwhelmed by what Crawford did. Benavides thought he had figured out how to counter Crawford, you know, throw shots when he throws shots, which is a good way to do it. But you've got to be able to do that for 12 rounds because Crawford can. That's what Colorado does for you. That's what running up 2,000-foot elevations does. That's what training like a monster does. That's what sparring top-level people and having them in camp with you, like Jim L. Herring and Shakur Stevenson. That's what it's, that's what it's all about. That's, that's why you get top-level sparring, and that's why you go and spar Timothy Bradley. So you know that you can do everything over 12 rounds. And we saw that with Ricky Burns, where people thought Ricky's stamina would come into play. And Crawford put the accelerator down and pulled away from Ricky Burns. Did the same thing with Gamboa. And I know we can kind of talk about, is Crawford a weight bully? But that's a discussion for another time. In terms of what he does in fights, the pace he sets is hard for everyone. And it's going to be interesting when he fights the guys at Porter, who is all about pace. What's going to happen there? Less so with a Danny Garcia, because with a Danny Garcia, it's more around timing and technique. It's, it's like Kel Brook, but I think a bit cuter, better educated, works off different angles and different positions. I think Gar Danny Garcia's got more to his game, and that's why they went one and one in meaningful amateur competitions. I think Thurman's another pace guy, but maybe not the same output as Porter. So 
I'll give Crawford a chance there. Spence, if we've got the old Spence back, then whew, that's one for the ages. That's all I can say about that. That might be like a Hagler versus Mugabe where it's just going to be the toughest man that wins. And I think the winners in that will be the fans ultimately. But what I wanted to say was Saturday's performance just reinforced me why we'd all love to train a guy like Terence Crawford. We'd love to have all our boxers be like Terence Crawford. And I'm not talking about having unbelievable skills and genetics. No, it's having the mindset to be a perfectionist. It's having the mindset to be a winner, whether you're playing basketball, whether you're playing table tennis, whether you're racing go-karts. You always want to win. You always want to be the best. And I don't see a lot of that in modern boxing. A lot of people are okay with where they're at. They trust their trainers too much, even though their trainers aren't delivering what they need. I see a lot of this. It worries me. Because I want to do an episode on something Kel Brook said that I find really interesting, where he, he said US trainers are better because in Britain you don't learn anything. But I think that's an episode in its own right. But a lot of boxers I see, and some of them I'm friends with, they post up the videos of them hitting the bag and everything. They do this, that, and the third. It ain't good enough. You know, in Britain, you can be an analyst with a few mates in the media and all of a sudden you're one of the best trainers in the country. Or you can be an ex-fighter who's just got an affiliation with the right people and you train. But when we ask really basic questions like, who taught you about boxing? Who taught you about training people? Where have you gone to develop yourself? This doesn't come out. And then you've got boxers in this country who are so used to blindly following trainers that they never ask questions. So they don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. And then when it goes wrong, a boxer doesn't know what he needs to fix. And I think ultimately it's a boxer who should know why a fight went wrong. A trainer should have their view and it's the outside perspective, but the boxer should know why he lost the fight. And if he doesn't, his camp didn't prepare him properly. He hasn't been prepared properly ever, I would imagine. But when you look at Crawford, and this puts a smile on my face once again, he looks like a guy who's in control of all the variables. Not afraid to take a shot to give three. When he wants to look good defensively, he can. When he wants to demoralize you by making you miss, he can do that. Then he can hurt you. He's a special talent. We can't call him a special fighter yet because he's got to cross the street and fight those PBC guys. And if he cleans out the division over there, he's a special fighter. But once again, guys, thanks very much. One thing I will say is, if you've got time, check out the, the interview I did with, with Big Porky. I want to put the link in the, in the episode notes. So if you're on iTunes, you should be able to find the link in the episode notes. If you're on SoundCloud, it should be there as well. I don't know if it comes up as a link. But do listen to that because that's a really interesting discussion as well. I think Porky and I found a level where it's, it's a sensible discussion without any ranting and raving. So please do listen to that because it's a really good episode and I'll leave the link in there so you can enjoy. In the meantime, have a great day and take care. <laughs>